Chapter Seven of the Life Everlasting by Marie Corelli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lisa Statler. Memories. Perfect happiness is the soul's acceptance of a sense of joy without question. And this is what I felt through all my being on that never-to-be-forgotten night. Just as a tree may be glad of the soft wind blowing its leaves, or a daisy in the grass may rejoice in the warmth of the sun to which it opens its golden heart, without either being able to explain the delicious ecstasy, so I was the recipient of light and exquisite felicity, which could have no explanation or analysis. I did not try to think. It was enough for me simply to be. I realized, of course, that with the Harlands and their two paid attendants, the materialist Dr. Braille and the secretarial machine Swinton, Raphael Santoris could have nothing in common. And, as I know by daily experience, that not even the most trifling event happens without a predestined cause for its occurrence and a purpose in its result. I was sure that the reason for his coming into touch with us at all was to be found in connection, through some mysterious intuition, with myself. However, as I say, I did not think about it. I was content to breathe the invigorating air of peace and serenity in which my spirit seemed to float on wings. I slept like a child who was only tired out with play and pleasure. I woke like a child to whom the world is all new and brimful of beauty. That it was a sunny day seemed right and natural. Clouds and rain could hardly have penetrated the brilliant atmosphere in which I lived and moved. It was an atmosphere of my own creating, of course, and therefore not liable to be disturbed by storms, unless I chose. It is possible for every human being to live in the sunshine of the soul, whatever may be the material surroundings of the body. The so-called practical person would have said to me, Why are you happy? There is no real cause for this sudden elation. You think you have met someone who is in sympathy with your tastes, ideas, and feelings. But you may be quite wrong, and this bright wave of joy into which you are plunging heedlessly, may fling you bruised and broken on a desolate shore for the remainder of your life. One would think you had fallen in love at first sight. To which I should have replied that there is no such thing as falling in love at first sight, that the very expression falling in love conveys a false idea, and that what the world generally calls love is not love at all. Moreover, there was nothing in my heart or mind with regard to Raphael Santoris save a keen interest and sense of friendship. I was sure that his beliefs were the same as mine, and that he had been working along the same lines which I had endeavored to follow. And just as two musicians, inspired by a mutual love of their art, may be glad to play their instruments together in time and tune, even so, I felt that he and I had met on a plane of thought where we had both, for a long time, been separately wandering. The dream yacht, 
with its white sails spread ready for a cruise, was as beautiful by day in the sunshine under a blue sky, as by night with its own electric radiance flashing its outline against the stars, and I was eager to be on board. We were, however, delayed by an attack of nerves on the part of Catherine, who during the morning was seized with a violent fit of hysteria, to which she completely gave way, sobbing, laughing, and gasping for breath in a manner which showed her to be quite unhinged, and swept from self-control. Dr. Braille took her at once in charge, while Mr. Harland fumed and fretted, pacing up and down in the saloon with an angry face and brooding eyes. He looked at me where I stood, waiting, ready dressed for the excursion of the day, and said, I'm sorry for all this worry. Catherine gets worse and worse. Her nerves tear her to pieces. She allows them to do so, I answered, and Dr. Braille allows her to give them their way. He shrugged his shoulders. You don't like Braille, he said, but he's clever, and he does his best. To keep his patience, I hinted with a smile. He turned on his heel and faced me. Well now, come, he said. Could you cure her? I could have cured her in the beginning, I replied, but hardly now. No one can cure her now but herself. He paced up and down again. She won't be able to go with us to visit Santoris, he said. I'm sure of that. Shall we put it off? I suggested. His eyebrows went up in surprise at me. Why, no, certainly not. It will be a change for you, and a pleasure of which I would not deprive you. Besides, I want to go myself. But Catherine... Dr. Braille here entered the saloon with his softest step and most professional manner. Miss Harland is better now, he said. She will be quite calm in a few minutes. But she must remain quiet. It will not be safe for her to attempt any excursion today. Well... That need not prevent the rest of us from going, said Mr. Harland. Oh, no, certainly not. In fact, Miss Harland said she hoped you would go and make her excuses to Mr. Santoris. I shall, of course, be in attendance on her. You won't come, then? And an unconscious look of relief brightened Mr. Harland's features. And as Swinton doesn't wish to join us, we shall be only a party of three. Captain Derrick, myself, and our little friend here. We may as well be off. Is the boat ready? We were informed that Mr. Santoris had sent his own boat and men to fetch us, and that they had been waiting for some few minutes. We at once prepared to go, and while Mr. Harland was getting his overcoat and searching for his field glasses, Dr. Braille spoke to me in a low tone. The truth of the matter is that Miss Harland has been greatly upset by the visit of Mr. Santoris, and by some of the things he said last night. She could not sleep, and was exceedingly troubled in her mind by the most distressing thoughts. I am very glad she has decided not to see him again today. Do you consider his influence harmful? I queried, somewhat amused. I consider him not quite sane, Dr. Braille answered, coldly and highly nervous persons like Miss Harland are best without the society of clever but wholly irresponsible theorists. The color burned in my cheeks. 
"'You include me in that category, of course,' I said quietly. "'For I said last night that if Mr. Santoris was mad, "'then I am too, for I hold the same views.' "'He smiled a superior smile. "'There is no harm in you,' he answered condescendingly. "'You may think what you like. "'You are only a woman. "'Very clever, very charming, "'and full of the most delightful fancies, "'but weighted, fortunately, with the restrictions of your sex. I mean no offence, I assure you. But a woman's views, whatever they are, are never accepted by rational beings. I laughed. I see. And rational beings must always be men, I said. You are quite certain of that? In the fact that men ordain the world's government and progress, you have your answer, he replied. Alas, poor world, I murmured. Sometimes it rebels against the rationalism of its rulers. Just then Mr. Harland called me, and I hastened to join him and Captain Derrick. The boat, which was waiting for us, was manned by four sailors, who wore white jerseys trimmed with scarlet, bearing the name of the yacht to which they belonged, the Dream. These men were dark-skinned and dark-eyed. We took them at first for Portuguese or Malays, but they turned out to be from Egypt. They saluted us, but did not speak, and as soon as we were seated, pulled swiftly away across the water. Captain Derrick watched their movements with great interest and curiosity. "'Plenty of grit in those chaps,' he said, aside to Mr. Harland. "'Look at their muscular arms. I suppose they don't speak a word of English.' Mr. Harland thereupon tried one of them with a remark about the weather. The man smiled and the sudden gleam of his white teeth gave a wonderful light and charm to his naturally grave cast of countenance. "'Beautiful day,' he said. "'Very happy sky.' This expression, happy sky, attracted me. It recalled to my mind a phrase I had once read in the translation of an inscription found in an Egyptian sarcophagus. "'The peace of the morning befriend thee, and the light of the sunset, and the happiness of the sky.' The words rang in my ears with an odd familiarity, like the verse of some poem loved and learned by heart in childhood. In a very few minutes we were alongside the dream, and soon on board, where Raphael Santoris received us with kindly courtesy and warmth of welcome. He expressed polite regret at the absence of Miss Harland, none for that of Dr. Braille or Mr. Swinton, and then introduced us to his captain, an Italian named Marino Fazio, of whom Santoris said to us smilingly, He is a scientist as well as a skipper, and he needs to be both in the management of such a vessel as this. He will take Captain Derrick in his charge and explain to him the mystery of our brilliant appearance at night, and also the secret of our sailing without wind. Fazio saluted and smiled a cheerful response. Are you ready to start now? he asked speaking very good English, with just the slightest trace of a foreign accent. Perfectly! Fazio lifted his hand with a sign to the man at the wheel. Another moment and the yacht began to move, without the slightest noise, without the grinding of ropes or rattling of chains or creaking boards. She swung gracefully round and began to glide through the water with a swiftness that was almost incredible. The sails filled, though the air was intensely warm and stirless. 
an air in which any ordinary schooner would have been hopelessly becalmed and almost before we knew it we were out of loch scavig and flying as though borne on the wings of some great white bird all along the wild and picturesque coast of sky towards loch brackadale one of the most remarkable features about the yacht was the extraordinary lightness with which she skimmed the waves she seemed to ride on their surface rather than part them with her keel everything on board expressed the finest taste as well as the most perfect convenience and i saw mr harland gazing about him in utter amazement at the elegant sumptuousness of his surroundings santoris showed us all over the vessel talking to us with the ease of quite an old friend you know the familiar axiom he said anything worth doing at all is worth doing well the dream was first of all nothing but a dream in my brain till i set to work with fazio and made it a reality owing to our discovery of the way in which to compel the waters to serve us as our motive power we have no blackening smoke or steam so that our furniture and fittings are preserved from dinginess and tarnish it was possible to have the saloon delicately painted as you see here he opened the door of the apartment mentioned and we stepped into it as into a fairy palace it was much loftier than the usual yacht saloon and on all sides the windows were oval shaped set in between the most exquisitely painted panels of sea pieces evidently the work of some great artist overhead the ceiling was draped with pale turquoise blue silk forming a canopy which was gathered in rich folds on all four sides having in its centre a crystal lamp in the shape of a star you live like a king then said mr harland a trifle bitterly you know how to use your father's fortune my father's fortune was made to be used answered santoris with perfect good humour and i think he is perfectly satisfied with my mode of expending it but very little of it has been touched i have made my own fortune indeed how and harland looked as he evidently felt keenly interested ha that's asking too much of me laughed santoris you may be satisfied however that it's not through defrauding my neighbours it's comparatively easy to be rich if you have coaxed any of mother nature's secrets out of her she is very kind to her children if they are kind to her in fact she spoils them for the more they ask of her the more she gives besides every man should make his own money even if he inherits wealth it is the only way to feel worthy of a place in this beautiful ever-working world he preceded us out of the saloon and showed us the staterooms of which there were five daintily furnished in white and blue and white and rose these are for my guests when i have any he said which is very seldom this for a princess if ever one should honour me with her presence and he opened a door on his right through which we peered into a long lovely room gleaming with iridescent hues and sparkling with touches of gold and crystal the bed was draped with cloudy lace through which a shimmer of pale rose colour made itself visible and the carpet of dark moss green formed a perfect setting for the quaintly shaped furniture which was all of sandalwood inlaid with ivory on a small table of carved ivory in the centre of the room 
lay a bunch of madonna lilies tied with a finely twisted cord of gold we murmured our admiration and santoris addressed himself directly to me for the first time since we had come on board will you go in and rest for a while till luncheon he said i placed the lilies there for your acceptance the colour rushed to my cheeks i looked up at him in a little wonderment but i am not a princess his eyes smiled down into mine no then i must have dreamed you were my heart gave a quick throb some memory touched my brain but what it was i could not tell mr harland glanced at me and laughed what did i tell you the other day he said did i not call you the princess of a fairy tale i was not far wrong they left me to myself then and as i stood alone in the beautiful room which had thus been placed at my disposal a curious feeling came over me that these luxurious surroundings were after all not new to my experience i had been accustomed to them for a great part of my life stay how foolish of me a great part of my life then what part of it i briefly reviewed my own career a difficult and solitary childhood the hard and uphill work which became my lot as soon as i was old enough to work at all incessant study and certainly no surplus of riches then where had i known luxury i sank into a chair dreamily considering the floating scent of sandalwood and the perfume of lilies commingled was like the breath of an odorous garden in the east familiar to me long ago and as i sat musing i became conscious of a sudden inrush of power and sense of dominance which lifted me as it were above myself as though i had without any warning been given the full control of a great kingdom and its people catching sight of my own reflection in an opposite mirror i was startled and almost afraid at the expression of my face the proud light in my eyes the smile on my lips what am i thinking of i said half aloud i am not my true self to-day some remnant of a cast-off pride has arisen in me and made me less of a humble student i must not yield to this overpowering demand on my soul it is surely an evil suggestion which asserts itself like the warning pain or fever of an impending disease can it be the influence of santoris no i will never believe it and yet a vague uneasiness beset me and i rose and paced about restlessly then pausing where the lovely madonna lilies lay on the ivory table i remembered they had been put there for me i raised them gently inhaling their delicious fragrance and as i did so saw lying immediately underneath them a golden cross of a mystic shape i knew well its upper half set on the face of a seven-pointed star also of gold with joy i took it up and kissed it reverently and as i compared it with the one i always secretly wore on my own person i knew that all was well and that i need have no distrust of raphael santoris no injurious effect on my mind could possibly be exerted by his influence and i was thrown back on myself for a clue to that singular wave of feeling so entirely contrary to my own disposition 
which had for a moment overwhelmed me i could not trace its source but i speedily conquered it fastening one of the snowy lilies in my waistband as a contrast to the bright bit of bell-heather which i cherished even more than if it were a jewel i presently went up on deck where i found my host mr harland captain derrick and marino fazio all talking animatedly together the mystery is cleared up said mr harland addressing me as i approached captain derrick is satisfied he has learned how one of the finest schooners he has ever seen can make full speed in any weather without wind oh no i haven't learned how to do it i'm a long way off that said derrick good-humouredly but i've seen how it's done and it's marvellous if that invention could be applied to all ships ah but first of all it would be necessary to instruct the shipbuilders put in fazio they would have to learn their trade all over again our yacht looks as though she were built on the same lines as all yachts but you know you have seen she is entirely different captain derrick gave a nod of grave emphasis santoris meantime had come to my side our glances met he saw that i had received and understood the message of the lilies and a light and colour came into his eyes that made them beautiful men have not yet fully enjoyed their heritage he said taking up the conversation our yacht's motive power seems complex but in reality it is very simple and the same force which propels this light vessel would propel the biggest liner afloat nature has given us all the materials for every kind of work and progress physical and mental but because we do not at once comprehend them we deny their uses nothing in the air earth or water exists which we may not press into our service and it is in the study of natural forces that we find our conquest what hundreds of years it took us to discover the wonders of steam how the discoverer was mocked and laughed at yet it was not really wonderful it was always there waiting to be employed and wasted by mere lack of human effort one can say the same of electricity sometimes called miraculous it is no miracle but perfectly common and natural only we have until now failed to apply it to our needs and even when wider disclosures of science are being made to us every day we still bar knowledge by obstinacy and remain in ignorance rather than learn a few grains in weight of hydrogen have power enough to raise a million tons to a height of more than three hundred feet and if we could only find a way to liberate economically and with discretion the various forces which spirit and matter contain we might change the whole occupation of man and make of him less a laborer than thinker less mortal than angel the wildest fairy tales might come true and earth be transformed into a paradise and as for motive power in a thimbleful of concentrated fuel we might take the largest ship across the widest ocean i say if we could only find a way some think they are finding it you for example suggested mr harland he laughed i if you like for example will you come to luncheon he led the way and mr harland and i followed captain derrick who i saw was a little afraid of him 
had arranged to take his luncheon with Fazio and the other officers of the crew apart. We were waited upon by dark-skinned men attired in their picturesque costume of the East, who performed their duties with noiseless grace and swiftness. The yacht had for some time slackened speed, and appeared to be merely floating lazily on the surface of the calm water. We were told she could always do this and make almost imperceptible headway, provided there was no impending storm in the air. It seemed as if we were scarcely moving, and the whole atmosphere surrounding us expressed the most delicious tranquillity. The luncheon prepared for us was of the daintiest and most elegant description, and Mr. Harland, who, on account of his ill health, seldom had any appetite, enjoyed it with a zest and heartiness I had never seen him display before. He particularly appreciated the wine, a rich, ruby-colored beverage, which was unlike anything I had ever tasted. "'There is nothing remarkable about it,' said Santoris, when questioned as to its origin. "'It is simply real wine.' though you may say that of itself is remarkable, there being none in the market. It is the pure juice of the grape, prepared in such a manner as to nourish the blood without inflaming it. It can do you no harm. In fact, for you, Harland, it is an excellent thing. Why for me in particular? queried Harland, rather sharply. Because you need it, answered Santoris. My dear fellow, you are not in the best of health and you will never get better under your present treatment. I looked up eagerly. That is what I too have thought, I said, only I dare not express it. Mr. Harland surveyed me with an amused smile. Dared not? I know nothing you would not dare, but with all your boldness, you are full of mere theories, and theories never made an ill man well yet. Santoris exchanged a swift glance with me. Then he spoke. Theory without practice is, of course, useless, he said. But surely you can see that this lady has reached a certain plane of thought on which she herself dwells in health and content? And can she not serve you as an object lesson? Not at all, replied Mr. Harland, almost testily. She is a woman whose life has been immersed in study and contemplation. And because she has allowed herself to forgo many of the world's pleasures, she can be made happy by a mere nothing, a handful of roses, or the sound of sweet music. Are they nothings? interrupted Santoris. To businessmen they are. And business itself? Is it not also from some points of view a nothing? Santoris, if you are going to be transcendental, I will have none of you said Mr. Harland, with a vexed laugh. What I wish to say is merely this, that my little friend here, for whom I have a great esteem, let me assure her, is not really capable of forming an opinion of the condition of a man like myself, nor can she judge of the treatment likely to benefit me. She does not even know the nature of my illness, but I can see that she has taken a dislike to my physician, Braille, I never take dislikes, Mr. Harland, I interrupted quickly. I merely trust to a guiding instinct, which tells me when a man is sincere or when he is acting a part. That's all. Well, you've decided that Braille is not sincere, he replied, 
and you hardly think him clever. But if you would consider the point logically, you might inquire what motive could he possibly have for playing the humbug with me. Santoris smiled. Oh, man of business, you can ask that? We were at the end of luncheon, the servants had retired, and Mr. Harland was sipping his coffee and smoking a cigar. You can ask that? he repeated. You, a millionaire, with one daughter who is your sole heiress, can ask what motive a man like Braille, worldly, calculating, and without heart, has in keeping you both, both, I say, you and your daughter equally, in his medical clutches? Mr. Harland's sharp eyes flashed with a sudden menace. If I thought, he began, then he broke off. Presently he resumed. You are not aware of the true state of affairs, Santoris. Wizard and scientist as you are, you cannot know everything. I need constant medical attendance, and my disease is incurable. No, said Santoris quietly, not incurable. A sudden hope illumined Harlan's worn and haggard face. Not incurable, but, my good fellow, you don't even know what it is. I do. I also know how it began, and when, how it has progressed, and how it will end. I know, too, how it can be checked, cut off in its development, and utterly destroyed. But the cure would depend on yourself more than on Dr. Braille or any other physician. At present, no good is being done and much harm. For instance, you are in pain now? I am, but how can you tell? by the small, almost imperceptible lines on your face, which contract quite unconsciously to yourself. I can stop that dreary suffering at once for you, if you will let me. Oh, I will let you, certainly. And Mr. Harland smiled incredulously. But I think you overestimate your abilities. I was never a boaster, replied Santoris cheerfully. But you shall keep whatever opinion you like of me and he drew from his pocket a tiny crystal file, set in a sheath of gold. A touch of this in your glass of wine will make you feel a new man. We watched him with strained attention, as he carefully allowed two small drops of liquid, bright and clear as dew, to fall one after the other into Mr. Harlan's glass. Now, he continued, drink without fear, and say good-bye to all pain for at least forty-eight hours. With a docility quite unusual to him, Mr. Harland obeyed. "'May I go on smoking?' he asked. "'You may.' A minute passed, and Mr. Harland's face expressed a sudden surprise and relief. "'Well, what now?' asked Santoris. "'How is the pain?' "'Gone!' he answered. "'I can hardly believe it but I'm bound to admit it. That's right, and it will not come back, not today at any rate, nor tomorrow. Shall we go on deck now? We assented. As we left the saloon, he said, You must see the glow of the sunset over Loch Korisk. It's always a fine sight, and it promises to be specially fine this evening. There are so many picturesque clouds floating about. We are turning back to Loch Skavig, and when we get there, we can land and do the rest of the excursion on foot. It's not much of a climb. Will you feel equal to it? 
this question he put to me personally i smiled of course i feel equal to anything besides i've been very lazy on board the diana taking no real exercise a walk will do me good mr harland seated himself in one of the long reclining chairs which were placed temptingly under an awning on deck his eyes were clearer and his face more composed than i had ever seen it those drops you gave me are magical santoris he said i wish you'd let me have a supply santoris stood looking down upon him kindly it would not be safe for you he answered the remedy is a sovereign one if used very rarely and with extreme caution but in uninstructed hands it is dangerous its work is to stimulate certain cells at the same time like all things taken in excess it can destroy them moreover it would not agree with dr braille's medicines you really and truly think braille an impostor impostor is a strong word no i will give him credit for believing in himself up to a certain point but of course he knows that the so-called electric treatment he is giving to your daughter is perfectly worthless just as he knows that she is not really ill not really ill mr harland almost bounced up in his chair while i felt a secret thrill of satisfaction why she's been a miserable querulous invalid for years since she broke off her engagement to a worthless rascal said santoris calmly you see i know all about it i listened astonished how did he know how could he know the intimate details of a life like catherine's which could scarcely be of interest to a man such as he was your daughter's trouble is written on her face he went on warped affections slain desires disappointed hopes and neither the strength nor the will to turn these troubles into blessings therefore they resemble an army of malarious germs which are eating away her moral fibre braille knows that what she needs is the belief that someone has an interest not only in her but in the particularly morbid view she has taught herself to take of life he is actively showing that interest the rest is easy and will be easier when well when you are gone mr harland was silent drawing slow whiffs from his cigar after a long pause he said you are prejudiced and i think you are mistaken you only saw the man for a few minutes last night and you know nothing of him nothing except what he is bound to reveal answered santoris what do you mean you will not believe me if i tell you and santoris drawing a chair close to mine sat down yet i am sure this lady who is your friend and guest will corroborate what i say though of course you will not believe her in fact my dear harland as you have schooled yourself to believe nothing why urge me to point out a truth you decline to accept had you lived in the time of galileo you would have been one of his torturers i ask you to explain said mr harland with a touch of pique whether i accept your explanation or not is my own affair quite agreed santoris with a slight smile as i told you long ago at oxford a man's life is his own affair entirely he can do what he likes with it but he can no more command the result of what he does with it than the sun can conceal its rays 
each individual human being male and female alike moves unconsciously in the light of self-revealment as though all his or her faults and virtues were reflected like the colors in a prism or were set out in a window for passers-by to gaze upon fortunately for the general peace of society however most passers-by are not gifted with the sight to see the involuntary display you speak in enigmas said harland impatiently and i'm not good at guessing them santoris regarded him fixedly his eyes were luminous and compassionate the simplest truths are to you enigmas he said regretfully a pity it is so you ask me what i mean when i say a man is bound to reveal himself the process of self-revealment accompanies self-existence as much as the fragrance of a rose accompanies its opening petals you can never detach yourself from your own enveloping aura neither in body nor in soul christ taught this when he said let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father which is in heaven your light remember that word light is not used here as a figure of speech but as a statement of fact a positive light surrounds you it is exhaled and produced by your physical and moral being and those among us who have cultivated their inner organs of vision see it before they see you it can be of the purest radiance equally it can be a mere nebulous film but whatever the moral and physical condition of the man or woman concerned it is always shown in the aura which each separate individual expresses for himself or herself in this way dr braille reveals his nature to me as well as the chief tendency of his thoughts in this way you reveal yourself and your present state of health it is a proved test that cannot go wrong mr harland listened with his usual air of cynical tolerance and incredulity i have heard this sort of nonsense before he said i have even read in otherwise reliable scientific journals about the auras of people affecting us with antipathies or sympathies for or against them but it's a merely fanciful suggestion and has no foundation in reality why did you wish me to explain then asked santoris i can only tell you what i know and what i see harland moved restlessly holding his cigar between his fingers and looking at it curiously to avoid as i thought the steadfast brilliancy of the compelling eyes that were fixed upon him these auras he went on indifferently are nothing but suppositions i grant you that certain discoveries are being made concerning the luminosity of trees and plants which in some states of the atmosphere give out rays of light but that human beings do the same i decline to believe of course and santoris leaned back in his chair easily as though at once dismissing the subject from his mind a man born blind must needs decline to believe in the pleasures of sight harland's wrinkled brow deepened its furrow in a frown do you mean to tell me do you dare to tell me he said that you see any aura as you call it round my personality i do most assuredly answered santoris 
I see it as distinctly as I see yourself in the midst of it. But there is no actual light in it. It is a mere grey mist, a mist of miasma. Thank you, and Harland laughed harshly. You are complimentary. Is it a time for compliments? asked Santoris with sudden sternness. Harland, would you have me tell you all? Harland's face grew livid. He threw up his hand with a warning gesture. No, he said almost violently. He clutched the arm of his chair with a nervous grip, and for one instant looked like a hunted creature caught red-handed in some act of crime. Recovering himself quickly, he forced a smile. What about our little friend's aura? He queried, glancing at me. Does she express herself in radiance? Santoris did not reply for a moment. Then he turned his eyes toward me, almost wistfully. She does, he answered. I wish you could see her as I see her. There was a moment's silence. My face grew warm, and I was vaguely embarrassed. But I met his gaze fully and frankly. And I wish I could see myself as you see me, I said half laughingly, for I am not in the least aware of my own aura. It is not intended that any one should be visibly aware of it in their own personality, he answered. But I think it is right we should realize the existence of these radiant or cloudy exhalations which we ourselves weave around ourselves, so that we may walk in the light as children of the light. His voice sank to a grave and tender tone, which checked Mr. Harland in something he was evidently about to say for he bit his lip and was silent. I rose from my chair and moved away then, looking from the smooth deck of the dream, shadowed by her full white sails, out to the peaks of the majestic hills, whose picturesque beauties are sung in the wild strains of Ossian, and the projecting crags, deep hollows and lofty pinnacles, outlining the coast with its numerous waterfalls, locks, and shadowy creeks. A thin and delicate haze of mist hung over the land like a pale violet veil, through which the sun shot beams of rose and gold, giving a vaporous, unsubstantial effect to the scenery, as though it were gliding with us like a cloud pageant on the surface of the calm water. The shores of Loch Scavig began to be dimly seen in the distance, and presently Captain Derrick approached Mr. Harland spyglass in hand. The Diana must have gone for a cruise, he said, in rather a perturbed way. As far as I can make out, there's no sign of her where we left her this morning. Mr. Harland heard this indifferently. Perhaps Catherine wished for a sail, he answered. There are plenty on board to manage the vessel. You are not anxious. Oh, not at all, sir, if you are satisfied, Derrick answered. Mr. Harland stretched himself luxuriously in his chair. "'Personally, I don't mind where the Diana has gone for the moment,' he said with a laugh. "'I'm particularly comfortable where I am. "'Santoris!' "'Here!' and Santoris, who had stepped aside to give some order to one of his men, came up at the call. "'What do you say to leaving me on board while you and my little friend go and see your sunset effect on Loch Korisk by yourselves?' 
Santorus heard this suggestion with an amused look. You don't care for sunsets? Oh, yes, I do, in a way, but I've seen so many of them. No two alike, put in Santorus. I dare say not. Still, I don't mind missing a few. Just now, I should like a sound sleep rather than a sunset. It's very unsociable, I know, but... Here he half closed his eyes and seemed inclined to doze off there and then. Santorus turned to me. What do you say? Can you put up with my company for an hour or two, and allow me to be your guide to Loch Korisk? Or would you too rather not see the sunset? Our eyes met. A thrill of mingled joy and fear ran through me, and again I felt that strange sense of power and dominance which had previously overwhelmed me. Indeed, I have set my heart on going to Loch Korisk, I answered lightly, and I cannot let you off your promise to take me there. We will leave Mr. Harland to his siesta. You're sure you do not mind? said Harland then, opening his eyes drowsily. You will be perfectly safe with Santorus. I smiled. I did not need that assurance. And I talked gaily with Captain Derrick on the subject of the Diana and the course of her possible cruise, while he scanned the waters in search of her. And I watched with growing impatience our gradual approach to Loch Scabig, which in the bright afternoon looked scarcely less dreary than at night especially now that the Diana was no longer there to give some air of human occupation to the wild and barren surroundings. The sun was well inclined toward the western horizon when the dream reached her former moorings and noiselessly dropped anchor, and about twenty minutes later the electric launch belonging to the vessel was lowered and I entered it with Santorus. A couple of his men managing the boat as it rushed through the dark steel-colored water to the shore. End of chapter 7